Isaiah 45 is our text this evening. We're going to look at the first eight verses of this passage tonight. So that's really as far as we'll, we'll get. Isaiah 45, beginning at verse 1, says, Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before Him and loose the armor of kings, to open before Him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, And Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. It is certainly not my intention to beat a dead horse into the ground, but but it has been, uh, it has to be said again, I've said it before, but it has to be said again that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now this is what every good and wise Christian should believe. That all scripture is inspired by God. And that holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We should all believe this. We simply will not discount the issue of inspiration. We simply will not discount the very fact that the Word of God is God-breathed. That's what it means. That's what inspiration means here. And here's why. This is the reason why we will not discount it. Because there is no more difficulty in understanding that God could foretell the rise of King Cyrus and what he would do for his people than it was to foretell the coming of the Lord Jesus into the world and the redemption that He would accomplish. Now understand that His first and second coming, His rejection and His eventual final acceptance by the people of Israel, all of this was foretold ahead of time. In the same way, the Lord God, through Isaiah, foretold the rise of Cyrus 200 years before Cyrus was born. And so I said all of that to say that the unbelieving critics of a single Isaiah use this passage here in verses 1 through 4 as proof that there had to be more than one author. Why is it that in one part of Isaiah, you know, he talks about this, but it has to be that somebody wrote this knowing that that's what his name was going to be. Why should we believe that if already we've seen all the scriptures that were given about Jesus first and second coming? Well, first coming for sure. If we only focus on the first coming, the fact of the matter is all of that was foretold and it all came to pass. So if that was the case, then why should it be so hard to understand that God could name someone 200 years before he's born and give him exactly what he is going to do 150 years later? You see, it's important to remember all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Remember this. 
This is something that we should never forget and it is something that we should always live by and live with and stand upon. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we ought to remember Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21 through 21, that says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Notice, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the foundation that we stand on. That when Jesus said, that Isaiah the prophet said, then we know there was one prophet, Isaiah, and not some pseudo-Isaiah. Well, with all that in mind, we saw at the end of the last chapter that God made some amazing decrees dealing with a person who was given the name Cyrus. Notice, if you will, back oh, about uh, one verse prior to verse 45, or chapter 45, when it says, Who says of Cyrus? Actually, go back to verse 27. Who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid? So we see how that name was given. He calls Cyrus my shepherd, who will perform all of God's pleasure and who will also be essential to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. And remember, all of this is given 200 years before Cyrus is born. Now in our text, here in chapter 45, Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed, meaning that this pagan king had a particular calling from the Lord for his work. Now, in essence, God poured out His Spirit on a pagan king because He wanted to use that man to bless and to deliver His people. Now, there, there is some precedence, uh, precedence as, as it were, for this thought in, in 1 Kings 19, by the way, when God commands the prophet Elijah to anoint a Syrian king, which would eventually be a part of getting rid of, of idol worship later on. And in 1 Kings 19, verse 15, it says, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. So here we find that just a very small, if you will, precedence, but nonetheless, we see how God has a prophet anoint a Syrian king because, in effect, he will use him later on. But while God would normally employ an Israelite for such purposes, we must remember that God is sovereign and may use anyone that He wills. God is sovereign and He can use anybody that He wants. And so when you look at verses 1 and 2 of our text, it says, Thus says the Lord to His anointed. He's calling Cyrus His anointed. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. And so we also see God's involvement in using this king, Cyrus, his right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. 
to open before him the double doors, the leaved doors, I believe, in King James translation, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. Now, history records that Cyrus had a remarkable military career. And that actually began when Cyrus became an adult, that he organized an, an army that rose up to defeat his own father and grandfather to become the king of Persia. Interesting history in the person of Cyrus. Xenophon, the historian, recorded Cyrus' conquest of the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Arabians, the Cappadocians, the Phrygians, the Lydians, the, Car Carian, the Carians, I should say, the Phoenicians, and the Babylonians, along with many others. I couldn't pronounce all the other names, so that's why I didn't mention them. But he uh, actually uh, conquered all of these lands and these peoples. And in loosening the loins of kings, as the King James says, or loosening the armor of kings, Cyrus, in effect, weakened those strong men. So we see how God used Cyrus, how God had predicted and prophesied that Cyrus would be used to do this to these nations, to subdue nations before him and loose or weaken the armor of kings. You know, if you loosen the armor of kings and their armor is not placed on very well, you get them in some kind of confrontation or in some kind of battle, well, if the armor is all kinds of loose, you know, it's not going to, you know, stay on. So that's the loosening, as it were, of, of, of the armor. It was just indicative and significant of, of this, uh, this very thought of weakening the nations and the kings. One example actually is found uh, in Daniel chapter 5, uh, verses 5 and 6. It says in the same hour, you remember this about this uh, particular king of Belshazzar. It says, in the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened. You see, it's the same word there. The joints of his hips were loosened, weakened, and his knees knocked against each other. You know, we oftentimes talk about, you know, being so afraid that our knees are knocking, you know. And, uh, but this guy was so loose because he was so weakened. I mean, he was just jolly, as it were. And, uh, well, we, I think you would be too if the finger of God was writing on that wall there or that wall there. I think we'd all kind of become... Uh, that gelatinous, <laughs> as it were. But the doors and the gates and the bars of verses 1 and 2 of our text, going back to them, refer to the conquered city of Babylon. Which is, by the way, what we see in Daniel chapter 5. After the river Euphrates was diverted. Because this is exactly what Cyrus did. When they came to attack Babylon, they did so by diverting the Euphrates River away from, from the city. They did miles up, and, and they, they, they made the river really go a different direction. And when, it, you know, when that part of the, the, the river dried, the, the riverbed dried so that uh, it was able to be walked upon, this is how they entered into the city. The Medes and the Persians could march through the lower the lowered level uh, water and under the river gates. 
And they wouldn't have to, uh, or I should say, they wouldn't have been able to enter had, had it not been for the bronze gates of the inner walls being left inexplicably unlocked. It was as if God made sure that they stayed unlocked. And these were gates within the inner walls of the city where they were coming in to Babylon. And uh, it wasn't such a bad thing either that uh, the king decided to have this major party going on and all the guards were somewhat drunk as well. So all of these things lent to what was taking place there in Babylon. And the gates that are mentioned here, by the way, were built by the Babylonians, and here's the reason, to keep the Israelites from escaping their captivity. So what is God doing when He has these gates to be opened, and then not only to be opened, but as you see them, I will go before you, make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. Well, what was happening was that Cyrus, when he went and opened these gates as well, for the release of God's people from their captivity. So God was also doing something with Cyrus to make it possible for now the children of Israel to return to their land. And then in verse 3 of our text it says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And so, again, to Cyrus. He says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. I'm going to give you treasures that are so hidden. There was, uh, it recorded again in the history of Cyrus's uh, conquests, uh, that in one particular conquest, he, he found over 38,000 pounds of gold. And so... God is saying, I'm doing this to you, Cyrus. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this with you. Why? He says it very clearly here in verse 3, that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake. And he says, not only that you'll know that I have done this, but that you'll know that the purpose of all of this is not for you. The purpose is for Israel my servant's sake, my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. You see, when Cyrus was used of the Lord to conquer Babylon, I mean, we'd have to figure that he had no great sense, that he had no great awareness of God's guidance or presence. At the very moment that he's going into Babylon, that, that, these, that, that God is really the last thing on his mind. You understand? God is using him. He has yet to realize the presence of God. More than likely, he thought of himself to be quite fortunate, incredibly brilliant, as well as a bit lucky. Wow, we're just walking right through. We're just coming right in. No war, no battle, no fighting. Everybody's drunk anyway. What a good way to take over this place. And then, look at here. Look at what we just found. A ton of gold. Well, that's ours now. Is how lucky he felt. He must have felt. 
I want you to think about something. There are certainly times when we accomplish something successfully only by the blessing and pleasure of God and maybe never see the extraordinarily miraculous hand of God behind it all. I got to tell you, when something good happens to you, give thanks to God. His hand was there. His hand was with you. His hand was helping. His hand was leading. His hand was guiding. His hand was protecting. If something good happens to you, give thanks to God. Don't look for a mirror. I think sometimes that's the first thing we want to say, man, all right. You see? That's our nature. God says, hey, I did it. And it's okay for him to say that because he did it. He's that big. He's that awesome. Is it any wonder then that, that the Lord gave Cyrus these great treasures so that he may come to know that the Lord is God and that he was called by name to do the mighty works that he was doing? That, that's an impre- this, this is a very important phrase throughout Scripture. That you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The first time we see it is in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. When the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God and who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. He is saying this to Moses that Moses will present this to Pharaoh and to his people. This is why Moses has gone in. To let them know, I'm going to deliver you. I've been chosen of God to deliver you. But there's that phrase, Then you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. In the next chapter, Exodus 7, verse 17, it's used now to the Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with a rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. Moses speaking for God. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. But this phrase is used most often. It is used most often to the children of Israel, to his own people. It is used most often to the children of Israel in the book of Ezekiel in the context of judgment. I'm not going to give you all of the, uh, the times he says it, but I'm going to give you a couple. Ezekiel 7, for example, verse 4. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. But I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. You see the context in which he uses that? Toward his own people. Ezekiel 11, verse 10. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. You know, I think this is another good reason for us to know the Lord. Because it seems to me that he says this to remind them that he's the Lord because they've forgotten. They've gone their own way. They've sought their own things. They've sought their own way. They've taken credit for things that wasn't for them to take credit for. You shall know that I'm the Lord. Time and time again in the book of Ezekiel, this is stated. And so we move on. Let's go to verse 5 of Isaiah 45. 
And go down to verse 7. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. Now, these, these are very important phrases. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. Again, speaking to Cyrus, speaking to this Persian king. He says, I will gird you, I will strengthen you in other words, though you have not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting. And this is another important phrase. All of these phrases are very significant. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. Interesting that in the King James it says I create evil. I'll, I'll explain that in just a moment. I the Lord do all these things. At this point, Cyrus didn't even know the Lord, and yet God could anoint him and bless him and use him. How much more then should the Lord be able to do through those who know him and trust him? See, if God is using somebody who still at this point yet doesn't know him, how much more should the Lord be able to do through those who know him and trust him? And if we continue to maintain that fellowship, if we continue to maintain that, that uh, uh, communion with God and trust the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love the Lord with all of our heart, how much more would the Lord be able to do through us? It's interesting that in Proverbs ch- uh, chapter 21, Proverbs 21 verse 1, it says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Isn't it interesting that God helped Cyrus to turn a river of water to accomplish what God wanted Cyrus to accomplish eventually for his own people, Israel. You see, it is the Lord and no one else who does these things. The purpose for the statement in verse 6 That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting. That there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The reason for this particular statement in verse 6 is that from the east to the west, which is rising of the sun, to this going down. The purpose for the statement here is that from east to west, people everywhere would know that apart from the Lord, there is no other God. Apart from the Lord, there is no other God. If Cyrus and the Lord called, subdued all the nations, it is evident that the gods of these nations are nothing and that the Lord alone is the living God. And so the final purpose then of all this goes beyond Israel's redemption. It goes way beyond just Israel's redemption. Yes, this is the purpose. Yes, this is part of God's plan for Israel. But it goes far beyond Israel's redemption. That purpose is to disclose the Lord's greatness before the nations in order that they may acknowledge Him as God. Again, if you go back to verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God besides me. You'll understand this when we begin to understand where Cyrus was coming from. What his religion was all about. Some believe that the reason why God chose Cyrus was because coming out of Persia, he was actually uh, monotheistic. 
Although that monotheism was, was dualistic, and I'll explain that in a moment. But you see, all the other nations themselves were polytheistic. They, they believed in many gods. And some believe that because Cyrus was monotheistic, he could actually understand the, the, the God of Israel being a single God rather than a lot of gods. And, and so some people that believe that that's why there was this particular connection. But the problem was the dualism of, of this particular uh, uh, monotheism of, of, of the Persians. Let's go back. Let's, let's, uh, before we clear all of that up, let's go back here to Ezra. Uh, I quoted this last week, but I want to quote it again. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Because I want you to see the fulfillment of what we've just read in verses 5 through 7 of our text. Then we're going to get a little bit, little bit more closer into the text itself. But, but let's look at Ezra 1, verse 1. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, notice, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation, notice, throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. Notice what he calls it. The Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Now, who, are, who is that? The Jews. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. And notice it says, he is God, which is in Jerusalem. There's something that I believe it was Josephus, the, the historian, uh, had mentioned as, in his antiquities uh, that uh, all that was written of Cyrus before it happened, his name, his purpose, all that, that, he, that God said he was going to do was shown to him. The scrolls of Isaiah, the book of Chronicles. And he saw that. And when he saw that was when he began to proclaim the God of Israel as God. Isn't that an interesting thing? And so, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. Let's take a closer look at verse 7 of our text. Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says, I form the light and create the darkness, or create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, that's confusing to some people. God is God of light, and He's also creating darkness. God makes peace, but He also creates evil or calamity. Well, first of all, let me say that this is not implying that God is the author of moral evil. God is not the author of moral evil. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And the implication is, of course, nor does he himself tempt anyone with evil. So right there, he's not the God 
who tempts with evil, moral evil. Secondly, one of the Lord's points in, in, in all of what he's saying here in this passage is that there are not two gods or forces in heaven, one good and one bad, as in that dualistic yin and yang. You know, you all know what that yin and yang is. The, as a matter of fact, uh, it's part of the Korean symbol, Korean flag, you know, yin, yang. You know, there, there's a balance. That's the dualism, the balance in the universe, you know. The yin, the yang, this and that, eh, 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 you know, whatever. That's the way a lot of the world is thinking, that everything is kind of dual. There's good, there's good, you know, but there's also bad. Uh, the Persians had a, a dualistic concept of God. Again, they, they had a, a, a form of, of a monotheistic God, in other words, a single God, but in that singularness there was this dualism because they actually had the Ahura Mazda, and I'm not talking about the car, but that's exactly how it's spelled, the Ahura Mazda, which was their good God who had created light. In other words, he was the good side of God that created light. And the Angra Mainaya, or the Angra Mainaya, yeah, Mainaya, Mainya, that's it. Angra Mainya, which was their evil God who created darkness. That, that's how they saw it. it was, you know, it's, it's the two-sided thing, you know, the dualism. So what the Lord is saying in this statement can be understood this way. Again, the statement is, I form the light and create darkness, I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So what the Lord is saying here in this statement can be understood this way. If there is a thunderstorm, listen carefully, if there is a thunderstorm and great damage is done, God says, I take full responsibility for it. If everything is fair and beautiful, God says, this is from me. If there is a great earthquake, God is behind it. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about it in terms of what is said in Amos chapter 3 verse 6, the the prophet Amos, Amos chapter 3 verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Now, makes us ask the question. This is what makes us ask this question. Please, please consider this. Does God not allow this to wake up His people and to lead His people to repent and to acknowledge Him as sovereign and trust Him for deliverance? Think about it in terms of what the goal of allowing certain things to happen sovereignly. Does God not allow certain things to happen to wake up His people, to lead His people to repentance, to lead them to acknowledge Him as sovereign, to lead them to trust Him for deliverance? We see that more than any place in the Old Testament. So what the Lord is saying here is He's taking responsibility for everything that occurs. But it is not always that He is working directly Himself. Okay, now here's, here's where we have to grab on to the, the, 
you know, to the wisdom here. It is not always that he is working directly himself. We're not talking about, a, you know, God is not Jekyll and Hyde. Y'all, how many of you are familiar with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Okay, y'all, how many of you read books in school? I mean, uh, uh, or even saw the movie, you know. Uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know, Dr. Jekyll, I forget which one was the, eh, you know, the weird one, the other one, kind of straight guy. Okay, so, you see, inside of one person, these two, uh, and then the other guy, ah, nice, all in one person, you know. We think God's this way. But no, 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 understand. He's not working in that, in that way. He's not working directly himself, but that he permits others to work. Understand. For example, he allowed Satan to test and to try Job. Read the first chapter of, of the book of Job and, and, and Satan actually comes to him and he says, you know, God actually tells Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, upright in all of his ways. Trust me. Satan tells him, well, of course he would because you protect him. You don't let me get to him. Give me an inch. I'll tell you what, if you give me an inch, I'll go in there. And I'll do something that will make him curse you. This is a quick paraphrase here, okay? Go home and read Job. But, but the, the fact of the matter is that God says, okay, but you can't not touch him. And of course, what happens in the first chapter? Well, his, 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 uh, his possessions, you know, he's a very wealthy man, considered one of the, probably the wealthiest man of the time. Lost all his, his cattle, lost all of his possessions, lost all of his, you know, what, what was his capital, as it were. And then his own children were killed. Lost all of that. Not once did Job curse him. Satan comes back, says, give me a little bit more room, let me attack his body. God would only allow him to do so much. He had those boils on him. You imagine sitting with boils... If you ever had a boil, then those things are not comfortable. They hurt. And can you imagine Job sitting there with, with a potser, which is just a piece of pottery, and, and scratch him at? Ooh, watch out. Ugh, that doesn't feel good, does it? Some of you are thinking, what's wrong with him up there? But if you ever had a boil and you scratch one of those things, man, you're, you're in pain. I, I heard, you know, I, I used to hear guys, you know, we. They're scratching, and you know they couldn't hold back the ah, you know the scream because it hurts. And there he was scratching off these things with a piece of pottery. His wife tells him, you know, you need to curse God and die. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. The whole point is here that there are not two great powers in the universe in conflict with each other. There's only one God. That's the idea. There's only one God. Though there is evil working against him. I mentioned Satan coming. Now please understand. Satan is not equal to God. Never will be. Never can be. Satan is a created being. God is uncreated. Always has been. Always will be. Always has been. So there's nothing that equals God. There's only one God. So consider now the calamity of Job that I was getting to and what he said of them early on. In Job chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die, she says. But he said to her, notice what he says, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. 
Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job still was maintaining some sense uh, of wisdom, some sense of that integrity that he knew that God, who was God, had allowed this for whatever reason. But he would not curse his God. And he says, should I just indeed just get good from him if, and not this adversity? Are we able to take the good with the bad, in other words? I think, to, you know, to understand this, if you, if you do love to read, I, I think to, to, to really understand the struggles that man has with sometimes the, the way God acts or doesn't act, as it were, you need to read C.S. Lewis. And especially his, his books on, on suffering. Because there in, he gives his own first-hand account of how God brings this person into his life who would become his wife. And then she dies of cancer. And all he could look at in God was somebody who was just playing with people's lives and he learned painfully yet miraculously that that is not the God that he served he learned the lessons of Job and he learned the lessons of the Apostle Paul are we, to, are we able to take the good with the bad? Or are we at times resisting the things that the Lord is trying to do with us and for us? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10, through 10, He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. You know, he had been receiving these revelations from the Lord. And, 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 and so that he wouldn't get to that point of, 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 of boasting that he was receiving revelations like no one else was. Notice that a thorn in the flesh was given... To me, he says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. God allowing a messenger of Satan. Notice that it's not Satan himself. It's a messenger of Satan. That's what's usually bothering us. Not Satan himself. See, Satan's doing what he did with Job. He's out there always accusing us. That's why he's called, you know, the accuser of the brethren. Accusing us one way or other. He sends his old messengers out, demons, you know, but these demonic kind of powers and influences. So Paul says, uh, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. By the way, that doesn't mean to buffet me. Now, some people probably get uh, buffeted a few times above measure. But he said, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, which means to pounce and to hit him hard, lest I be exalted above measure. These are not little slaps. The word buffet means hard hitting, you know. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Understand, 
that Paul is not saying here that he loves it. Beat me up, Lord. That's not what he's saying. I love it. Just I can take it. Go ahead, Lord. Beat me. That's not what it means when he says that he takes pleasure in infirmities. Please follow through the whole idea. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses. In other words, I take pleasure in all that may happen for Christ's sake. Notice, that's the key right there, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because my, His strength is made perfect in my weakness. If I try to be strong, I'm going to die. If I try to be strong, I'm not going to make it. If I try to be strong, I'm going to get defeated. But if I am weak and He's strong, then I'm going to win. That's why I take pleasure in those things. Not that I take pleasure in them happening to me, but I take pleasure in knowing that if I die to myself and let Christ live in me, that His strength is going to get me through. The Apostle Paul asked the Lord, to take, the, take away the problem. But the Lord said, no. In essence. And Paul eventually accepted God's answer. Remember that God didn't change the situation. But instead, He worked an even greater way through Paul's life because of the situation. The attitude, I, I really believe, should, should, not, should, should be, God, I know you're here. Though it's hard to tell. Rather than to say, God, where are you? Where'd you go? Why'd you leave me? You see, because we're not believing then that he said, I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you. I'm with you. The moment a calamity strikes, a moment a situation turns uh, harshly against us, we should say, God, I know you're here. I want to know, what do I do now? What's my next step, Lord? Because I have to trust you. I, I can't trust myself. I can't trust in the wisdom of men. I must trust you because you've said you'll be with me. I know you're here. Let me see you in this Yes, if you can, change this situation. Change, Lord, the, the, the things that are happening to me. Change, you know, the direction. But, Lord, if not, I know you're here. Therefore, when I'm weak, be strong, Lord. Is that your prayer when you feel weak? Let it be. Lord, I'm weak. Acknowledge it. But in my weakness, he's strong. That's exactly what Paul is saying. We need to be willing to yield to what God wants to do in our lives. And the problem that we, you know, the dilemma that we have in this life is that we live in such an instant and quick and, and moving society. Everything has to happen right away. Everything has to happen instantly. You press a remote today, TV goes on. Folks, when we first had our members, all you oldies... Put the TV on, you had to wait 20 minutes before it finally came on. Well, not that long. But you remember, right? Remember? Remember? Turn it on. We're going to miss the show. <laughs> finally, you know, the screen comes on and then it's white. Fix it. What's that? The rabbit ears, right? Okay, just stand there. Don't move. 
today, there it is. You know that God is the perfect parent who never makes a mistake when He disciplines us simply because He loves us with an everlasting love. God is the perfect parent who never makes a mistake. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. There's so much love in that statement, but let's look at the explanation of that by Paul in Hebrews 12. This is explained for us here. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For when the Lord loves, He chastens, for whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If, if you endure chastening, listen, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, and notice this, if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. That, that makes it real clear. We're either the sons of God or we're not. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Boy, isn't that true? But painful. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Please remember the word righteousness there. Because it will come up again in just a moment. Getting back to Isaiah, this, this portion of the prophecy ends now. Oh, by the way, I just want to make clear. That's why there's only one God. Creates light. In darkness. There's not one God with a dualistic nature. He got, when things happen, there are always reasons why He's allowed it because of His perfect sovereignty. There is a goal behind it all. Okay, so we move on. This portion of prophecy now ends in a song. That's where we're stopping here in verse 8 tonight. Uh, here's a song in which Israel's future salvation, redemption, and liberation is celebrated with enthusiasm. Verse 8 says, Rain down, you heavens, from above. This is God speaking, by the way. Rain down, from heaven, or, rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Notice. Salvation and righteousness together. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation. So there's, he's calling down rain from above, opening the, 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 uh, the earth, waters to come up as well. 
Let righteousness spring up together with salvation. I, the Lord, have created it. So the heavens and the clouds are instructed then to rain down righteousness on the earth. Now this is the saving righteousness of God by which He redeems His people and destroys their enemies. Isaiah chapter 1, all the way back to the beginning. We're not going all the way to start over, but in verse 27 it says, Zion shall be redeemed, notice, shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. Isaiah 42 verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Righteousness and what is, um, what is implied here, of course, is, is their salvation. And then in Judges chapter 5 verse 11, I'm doing this very quickly so we can come to an end here. But Judges 5 verse 11 says, Far from the noise of the archers. By the way, this is a song of Deborah, the judge. Far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord. Notice, the righteous acts of the Lord. The righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. You see, the righteous acts of the Lord that Deborah praised God for were those by which he intervened to bring salvation and victory to his people. And so the great God described in the previous passage in our text where we were talking about how great God was and that He was God and alone, He was God and no one else could be beside Him. The great God described in the previous passage in our text can send a flood from heaven full of righteousness and salvation and blessings from every direction, coming down, coming from up, uh, even coming up from the earth. It is important to see that salvation and righteousness will always spring up together. Salvation and righteousness. Salvation and righteousness springing up together. When the Lord brings salvation to a life, He always brings righteousness to that life as well. You can't have one, you see, without the other. Psalm 24, verse 5. Now I'm just giving you the ones in Psalms. <laughs> but there's a ton of these in the Scripture. Psalm 24, verse 5, He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. You see, righteousness and salvation. Psalm 51, verse 14, David in his prayer to the Lord, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Righteousness and salvation. Salvation and righteousness. Psalm 65, verse 5, By awesome deeds and righteousness you will answer us, O God, of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas. Righteousness and salvation. Psalm 71 verse 15. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. For I do not know their limits. Righteousness and salvation. And jump to the, Old, to the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, this is, this is the thought here. A person can say, yeah, I, I prayed a prayer and now I'm saved, and that's all that matters. I'll live the way I want. No. Because when you're saved... You receive the righteousness of God. Therefore now you live in the righteousness of God.
You can't separate that. Your life has to change. It has to be different. It has to be a righteous life. Paul says, With a heart one believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. And by the way, this is without mentioning the many verses in the book of Isaiah. I, you know, I was looking at them all. I said, man, if we'll be here all night. I'll be quoting all these verses. That, that, where righteousness and salvation spring up together. So let's close here with this thought. In Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Coming back to the character of God. To the one true God who is alone above all. None stand with Him. Yet that God is a God that can say we because there is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There is the triune God in one. It's one God. Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. And here's the reason. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You see, when we deal with the God of our salvation, with the God who alone is God, we have to remember this one very important point. There's none like Him. There's none like Him. He spoke and it was done. For Him to give us the opportunity to come to Him as we do with our sins, to lay them before Him and say, Father, forgive me, cleanse me, purify me, fill me with Your righteousness again. What a privilege that is. Because we're dealing with the God who created the heavens and the earth. By the way, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word created, there is the word barah in the Hebrew That word means out of, created out of nothing. God spoke and it was done. That is the God that we can know tonight. Have a personal relationship with this God. Who sent us His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life and when we know him we know him well enough to come to him now as father father and we can call him that because now we know who he is he alone is God Shall we pray?